Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun and formal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. I remember being so intrigued when my real estate partner, Greg told me about his brother, big, huge record producer, name you would recognize in Los Angeles. And he was on the Ascension, the big Ascension. But I remember midway through his rise, he mentioned to Greg that he really needed to make or be worth $100 million. But the reason that he did need to make this was that he didn't feel successful. He didn't feel valuable. And that would enable him to buy some kind of fancy airplane. And I remember Greg and I, we were just laughing. It's just like so inconceivable. But to him, it was real. It was, he needed to have this certain amount of money to buy the certain airplane by the time he was 30-something years old. And I imagine it's because everyone around him, that's what they had. And I was thinking about that story as I was listening to Andrew Yang. He's one of the millions of presidential candidates running. And he's kind of running on his freedom dividend. That's universal basic income that would guarantee, I think it's $1,000 a month in payments to every U.S. citizen over the age of 18. And it wouldn't be bound to things like welfare, like drug testing or tax status. It would just offer every American of all income levels that cash assistance. And then he said, the truth is that we just need to get more money into people's hands. And that's what will improve people's lives. And I remember thinking about that and thinking about Greg's brother. And I thought, is that really true? And that led to this week's curiosity bite, which I will pose to you. Do we need to feel economic relevance to feel valuable? When I was pondering that curiosity bite, I had difficulty because I didn't know what economic relevance was. What do you mean by economic relevance? That was a difficult one for me to wrap my brain around. In this context, it's a really good question. But I think in this context, It would mean that in some way, what you can do is contributing to the economic engine of our country or the economic engine of the world. You are working, doing something that has some monetary value attached to it that matters. But I also think that the question is a really, really good one that you pose because it is so clear. I mean, what we do is really not important. If this podcast never aired, (laughs) I beg to differ. (laughs) It is extremely important to us and everyone and all of those listeners out there. (laughs) But in terms of really whether I need to or you need to contribute to the economic engine, it really we were really somewhat economically irrelevant, more so than we would in a hunter gatherer society or even during the Industrial Revolution. What about a trust fund baby? They're not necessarily working hard for economic relevance. Are they relevant economically just because they inherited a lot of money? I don't know. So I guess my question is, assuming that economic relevance is defined by how we kind of laid it out, I ask you the curiosity bite. Do we need to feel economic relevance to feel valuable? And then again, you go to value. How do you feel valuable? I don't 
think so. I feel valuable through expression of creativity, whether it's dance or music or art. I think that gives me a lot of value. I think some people get value through religion or spirituality, and it has nothing to do, I think, with economic relevance. So you think the answer to this week's curiosity bite is no. no. So Andrew Yang, you will not be voting for Andrew Yang for president because he feels that just giving someone a little bit of money or some amount of money is really the most important thing there is. I mean, I'm not saying that it's not appreciated. And, <laughs> you know, with with all of our technological advances, AI is going to be taking away a lot of our jobs. We're going to need some type of income or some type of way of supporting basic needs. I think purpose and passion are two separate things that definitely contribute to how we perceive ourselves as valuable. And I think purpose is more tied to reason. We kind of want to create a reason, whereas passion involves an emotion, if you had to kind of differentiate between the two. That's why I think that searching for your passion is silly. I think obviously being curious and then cultivating that passion is very different than searching for that passion. And I think that that's a message that is incorrect to our children mm-hmm. and to ourselves, that if we don't have a passion, that we're in some some way flawed. Whereas, and, or, or that if you have a job, you should be passionate about that or it's the wrong job. Yeah. Or the wrong career. Right. Yeah. That's I think that's completely weird because you have to cultivate a passion. And if you want to cultivate that within your job, that's fine. But if you don't, so it's really a cultivation problem. It's not a where's Waldo. Oh, there's <laughs> my passion. So I think those are the two things that contribute to value. And this universal basic income is proposed to reduce poverty and economic inequality. I would argue I'm not even sure that it would do that. Obviously, a lot of the criticisms stem from the fact that it is socialist. Oh my God, it's socialist. Don't say that Don't evil say word. That bad word. And also that it butts up against our liberty. We should have the agency to decide what we want and how we want and what we put into something is what we get out of something and this whole, whole sense of liberty. Does that also have to do with fairness? Yes. I mean, I think to the two sides of the coin with fairness. Fairness meaning it's only fair that you get only what you put in. And then the other side of fairness is that, so that would be fairness in terms of opportunity versus fairness of outcome. Right. And I think those are the two sides of the coins of fairness that people look at when they're, that's a good question, when you're looking at universal basic income. Now, other people talk about universal basic resources, and then they say, oh, that's really, really socialism. (laughs) Because if you're just giving resources, at least with universal basic income, we have some kind of agency in deciding how we're going to spend that money. But with universal basic resources, oh, that's definitely socialism. It's interesting when you think about economic relevance and how realistically so many of us, without even knowing it, are not economically relevant. Right. Are you working towards something where you are getting a paycheck for something that is seemingly required in this world? You know, are you using your money like manure where you spread it around so that nice things grow? That's from a musical, of course. What musical is that? Hello, Dolly. <laughs> You're always bringing in <laughs> the music. Hello, Dolly. Well, hello, Dolly. It's so nice <laughs> to have. No, I'm not going to sing. I remember when I offered the same thing. I said, to thank you for singing at my wedding. I'd like to sing at yours. Your response made me feel very musically irrelevant. I want to get back to the whole idea of universal basic income for a minute and economic relevance, because one of the arguments that I don't see being made 
and maybe it is being made and I'm not seeing it just because I'm not seeing it doesn't mean it's not out there. But I've looked. One of the arguments against universal basic income that I think is very legitimate it has to do with behavioral economics. Right. And the idea that economics is all based on humans being rational and behavioral economics kind of debunks that whole thing. And I was thinking about how we are or are not rational with our money. Let's say we're given some chunk of money. And we think to ourselves, if we were given a chunk of money, like $1,000 a month or $10,000 a month or whatever the amount, that we would do exactly the wisest thing with that money. But they, those people, the uneducated people, the people that we see as more economically irrelevant than we are, although we're probably equally economically relevant because I'm not coding the next AI machine learning tool to hack humans. I think that we would find that even at high, high levels of education, economists and statisticians, that we all make irrational decisions with our money. For example, we're less likely to sell something for $20 than we are to buy that same thing for $20. That's endowment effect, right? Or loss right. aversion. Right. We're less likely to walk away from a blackjack table having just lost a hand than we are having just won a hand. We're more likely to become politically involved when our rights are threatened than when there's a vote on a law that would give us more rights. For example, you look at even the Affordable Health Care Act, and of course, people are going to listen saying, I love it, I hate it, I didn't like it, I always hated it, whatever. But statistically, many people who didn't want the Affordable Health Care Act don't want to lose it. So that's loss aversion. Mm -hmm. Here's a little tool to help us separate emotion from decision. I think it's fun to look at because when you think about liberty and how we always make the right decisions and socialism is bad because it takes away our liberty. Okay, let's play a little game. It's something that I borrowed from my boyfriend, Daniel Kahneman, behavioral economist. Hubba hubba. Hubba hubba. <laughs> kissy kissy. One of my many boyfriends. All right. Let's say that you have a low cost diversified portfolio and now you and you have stock that your brother-in-law, my husband, Stephen, recommended. Okay. Okay. Now imagine you went to bed and overnight someone sold the stock and replaced it with cash. Okay. okay. So now they sold. The next morning you have a choice. You can buy back Stephen's recommended stock for the same price. Or you can take that cash and add it to your very well-designed portfolio. What would you do? And there's not a third option to just blow it at the casino down the street. <laughs> okay. okay. Or you can blow it at the casino down the street. <laughs> I would probably put it in the low-cost, highly diverse portfolio. Right. Most people wouldn't buy the stock back. Right. Just by changing your perspective, investing cash versus getting rid of the stock, you can gain clarity and have the emotional space to make a decision that you know you need to make. You might not have sold that stock that day, but it was sold for you. Right. Okay? If you wouldn't have sold it. It would have just sat there. Yeah. But you certainly wouldn't buy it back. Right. But keeping it and buying it back is the same thing. So it's a little convoluted, but it shows. I get it. So it shows how it doesn't matter at every level. I mean, even I think there's even something where you have heads or tails and if you if it's heads, you're going to lose $10,000. So how much would you have to win to make it worth it to toss that coin? At least $10,000. Right. But some people, a lot of people will say 20000 whatever, because the loss of $10,000 weighs so much more heavily. See, you might be good for universal basic income because wow. you would use it wisely. But this loss aversion is education agnostic. Like, it's what humans do. And there's a whole bunch of things like this that show us that we don't make the wisest decisions. So even if we were given a universal basic income, we wouldn't necessarily use it 
for all the things that create purpose. Speaking of that, I have a list. Yay, I love a list. A list. And this is really about the different levels of purpose. And purpose and value go hand in hand. So, of course, the first one would be survival, your basic needs. Well, that's interesting because do you think our basic needs are universally basic? Either within our family, within our neighborhood, within our city, within our state, within our country, within the world. Survival is so relative because, yeah, you need food and water and shelter. I was thinking about this. We were driving in Israel and I saw these Bedouin encampments. Mm -hmm. And the Bedouins were certainly surviving as they have for thousands and thousands of years. And I thought to myself, that looks like a homeless encampment. Here in Portland, that would have been a homeless encampment. Not even one of the fancy ones. No, not even one With of the, the fancy really cool tents and stuff. No. Yeah. I mean, some of them, sure, but some of them were just like what you would see a yeah, homeless like a encampment. Tarp. Yeah. And I thought, well, that means that survival is not as easy as to determine. Because, for example, when you think about healthcare, what is the basic healthcare that we need to survive? That changes. If everyone is now getting heart transplants or kidney transplants or we're faced with Ebola, it changes the dynamic of what we need to survive. So I'm not so sure that survival is clear. I, that's Right. Thinking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it still needs definition based on where you live, where you, you know, your culture. That's a very good question. It, it makes it sound so simple, but it isn't. What we need to survive is far, 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 far less than what we would like to consider that we need to survive. Right. Like I need to survive on chips and salsa, whereas maybe... I might need tequila in addition to that. Right. My survival needs might be <laughs> more severe. Yes. Or, you know, take something like... Shoes. Shoes to survive. Vast majorities of people throughout the world do not have shoes. Right. Anyway. All right. What's the next one? The next one is a, a pre-existing framework like religion or like nationalism, patriotism, or capitalism, something that has... An ism. An ism. An ism. We've talked about isms. Isms. But, yeah, something that is, is, exists that we can get behind. I think this is a really good one. I also think that people don't want to equate capitalism with religion or nationalism or well, patriotism. Well, then they're fools. Then they're fools. Because if we stopped believing that money would be there in the future, there would be no... There's yeah. no value. We've talked about this. I mean, right. that's that's so I think that that a pre-existing framework, a lot of people get behind and gives a lot of purpose to some people. Right. Religion, patriotism, capitalism. I want to support everything that is going to continue with this capitalist democracy that we have. Do you have any isms that you would get behind? You know, I really I don't even believe in free will. Yeah. I think that we can make conscious choices, but I think that everything that makes up our conscious choices, our thoughts, our wants, our needs, our desires is determined by prior causes outside of our control. Not like not like a spiritual hoo-hoo. but Not an like, alien. Not an alien. I mean, maybe. Maybe we're living. I think I might be one of the ones living in a simulation that is entirely possible. But my isms, oh, what is, do I have an ism? I don't, I think people need isms, but, or a lot of people need isms. I can't think of an ism that I really feel connected to. I don't even necessarily feel connected to humanism, but I think we have to because otherwise we would value an ant the same way we value, you know, our neighbor. And I right. think we can't do that. But maybe humanism, even though I kind of know it might be bullshit. Mm -hmm. 
How about you? I would say the same. Yeah. Really? Humanism. It's exactly an ism. the same. I don't really need much pre-existing framework to get behind. It doesn't give me purpose, I would say. The next one is accumulation, owning things, buying things, attaining things. Money really falls into this. So, you know, that economic relevance plays into that a little bit. Gives us purpose. I mean, your friend's brother, who I know who it is, but I'm not allowed to say, needed to feel value if he owned a plane. A certain kind of plane. He already owned a plane. Oh, he already well, owned a plane. Da. Yeah, he already owned a plane, but it wasn't the the plane. plane. I don't know enough about planes. I mean, I don't even I know. only know like a Cessna. I don't even know. It's so funny because I remember in terms of accumulation and I'm certainly one who likes stuff. I think I like pretty things. I like to own things. I don't have any idea that any particular thing that I have ever bought has given me value over the long haul. There are a couple of things that I bought that I really value more than others. One is my latex mattress. Every day oh, yeah. where I lay down on my latex mattress, I think to myself, I am so glad that I have accumulated enough resources to have this most comfortable bed. Every day. So that, to me, is like one of my most valuable purchases. For a while, I felt like my Vitamix was also that way. Like, hmm. I just love that I can afford a Vitamix, that I can make all these things. I need to pull it back out because I yeah. feel like... But anyway, accumulation of things. I remember also a friend of mine when her father got this new car... And I don't know anything. I didn't know anything about cars. And she was so proud that her father got this new car. She, I think she was 17, so she could drive it. And What kind was, of car do you remember? Yes, I completely do. Because I remember she told me that her father got a brand new BMW. And I said, I could tell from her reaction. And I said, is that fancy? <laughs> she was so disappointed. Because <laughs> her value was really tied to my being impressed. And I didn't know. I wasn't being rude. I just had no, I didn't know that that was fancy. And so I said, mm. is that fancy? I kind of feel like- You that, ruined it for her. I kind of feel that way about cars. Like, is a car cute? Yeah. Does it, does it have good safety and is a good mileage and whatever? Other than that, I'm not sure. And I wonder with accumulation, I think that we are moving more toward access. And I want to hear the rest of your list, but I want to just put a plug for something that I think should be discussed in lieu of universal basic income, in lieu of universal basic resources, and that is universal basic access. Because I think that accumulation is going to become less and less relevant once we have access to things. Now she has access to a car that can pick her up that has a luxurious interior, whatever. We don't have to own it. We don't have to own it. So that's access. Right. So that'll be an interesting way. What's the next thing? Altruism. Mm. I think about a couple of years ago, you went to two back-to-back -back funerals mm. of your friend's parents, I think. And I remember this. I think it actually changed my life. You told me about, at one of the funerals, they were talking about how this person did all these amazing things and was on this type of committee. And, and marched on Washington for civil rights. Yeah. Martin Luther King. I know exactly which one you're talking about. Had led the reproductive rights, some of the reproductive rights movements. Yeah. Then the next day you went to another funeral and basically this person didn't do much. Raised your kids, which is a wonderful thing, but didn't do much outside her home. I don't think she even had a job outside the home. And that made me realize, what is it going to be like for me when I die? Am I going to, or on my deathbed, am I going to look back and say, geez, I didn't do anything to better the world or didn't do anything to volunteer? So I started to get more involved outside the home. 
and I do now, and I and and it makes me feel wonderful. Do you think that altruism requires the impression of others? Now, let's say that I wasn't aware of any of the things that my friend's mom, who was perceived to not be a huge impact on the world, but maybe she did the things without anyone knowing. Yeah, so which does, is possible. When you talk about altruism, do you think it requires other people to be aware of it? If you just do altruistic things in the forest and no one hears or sees you, are you really altruistic? Do you remember that episode of Friends when Phoebe was trying to figure out if there was true altruism and she kept trying to do things like anonymously so no one would know and she's like, oh, that made me feel so good. Oh, damn! <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. Although when you think about it, the, in Judaism, the highest mitzvah is to do something anonymously, like donate anonymously. Right. Okay, what's the next one? The next one's personal development. That spiritual, spirituality. That it that's different than the pre-existing framework like religion. It's that certain thing that fills you with joy. Like I enjoy singing. I enjoy dancing. I don't necessarily need to do it in front of anyone. I don't need to do it for validation or approval. Give or me anything. an example of when you would sing. Like if you're going outside and you're just you need to sing, you're singing to a tree. You do that? Well, I mean, I used to sing down the street with no one watching. I mean, Ginger dances in her room by herself. She doesn't need anyone to watch. And I certainly don't need, I mean, the tree, it's nice when the tree watches, but I need to do that for my spiritual wellness. And it does, it, it gives me value. What I'm thinking about as I'm listening to all of these levels, so survival, pre-existing framework, accumulation, altruism, and then the personal spiritual development, I think, do any of these not rely on the impressions of others. Survival, it's relative. Right. I think I need shoes to survive. Right. I probably don't. I will be very uncomfortable. I will not feel like I want to go on if I'm in snow and I have to wrap bags around my feet. I Pre-existing framework, all the pre-existing frameworks need other people, the isms. Accumulation, absolutely. If what I have, when I first got out of college. I remember I packed everything in my Mercury Zephyr and I drove from St. Louis to Atlanta, Georgia. Everything I owned fit in that car and I felt large and in charge. But, you know, when I got there and some of the other people from New York and what they had for their apartments, I realized, ooh. <laughs> so for sure that. And then altruism. I'm not sure that that can really be others agnostic. I'm not, I challenge that. I do. Because if you're helping other people, then you have to kind of be curious enough to know what's helping. And therefore, you have to understand the impressions of others. Otherwise, you're just being paternal. I think we do a lot of altruism where we go into other countries and we've decided what's good for them. And we go in with our paternalistic or patronizing assumptions, whether it's a missionary going off to Africa trying to convert the people there. And they think that that's, I don't know. I have my questions about that. That We could, we could do a whole curiosity bite Ooh. episode on altruism. Yeah. And then the personal, if you're going to really sing to a tree, um, you might have some other issues. No, come on. Well, what about the beyond? What about the category where the spiritual monk is transcending purpose? Not to wander, to create a following like Forrest Gump or like, like some guru. So why are they doing it? To maybe, I, I'm assuming. Why would that give them purpose? I'm assuming, no, I'm actually thinking it doesn't give them purpose. I think it transcends purpose. I'm assuming that there is some there there that I just cannot relate to. I can't answer that because I'm not, I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm trying to meditate. Right. And 
I've learned that if you're focusing on trying to achieve something in meditation, then you're missing the point. Is it like existentialism? I don't know, but here's the deal. I, when I meditate, I feel like I'm trying to get better at meditation, meaning not having my mind wander. And when I have a good meditation, which is, I'm not really that good at it, but if I- I'm terrible at it. Yeah, but even just saying that, there's clearly good and bad meditation from everyone, but we're not supposed to like be analyzing good and bad. So it's kind of like there are no bad questions. Well, yes, there are. <laughs> if there are good questions, we know about like we know that we could get better at meditation. So Barclay describes when he has had a good meditation. And when he tries to describe it, he is experiencing something that I haven't even come close to experiencing, nor do I understand. So I don't know. What does he experience? Is it a feeling? Is should, it a we should, thought? Get, we should get him on this podcast. That'd be cool. To interview him because it's a feeling and he comes out of it when it's good with a clarity hmm. and maybe he goes into it with a lack of clarity i don't think i can answer the beyond purpose because i'm not a highly spiritual person i think maybe i'm one of the simulations that i will never achieve that kind of level but i think that that's the level of what level of transcending purpose even though i don't believe in free will i still feel a need to have a purpose not a passion as much, because I can cultivate that in a moment's notice. Oh, I'm interested in this or interested in that, just with a little curiosity. But the purpose, I still am too tied to it, maybe, even though I don't want to admit it. I'm still tied to it, so I don't think I could be a transcendental monk walking around I don't barefoot. think you could either. No, because I'm not a, I'm, or as mom said, there are new souls and old souls, right? and I'm a new soul. That's why I think I'm a simulation. Like, if we're half simulated people and half not, I'm one of the simulated people. Hmm. But I also think that if, we could biohack ourselves. So for example, if we can take Prozac and we can feel happy, well, then are we happy? And does it matter that we're taking Prozac to be happy versus going on a Ferris wheel or whatever makes someone happy? If we could get to the point where you are singing to a tree and there is some kind of nanobot in your system that is able to analyze your biochemical composition at the time that you are showing on your face that elation, that sense of purpose, that passion, whatever it is, the value. Recreated at a different time. And then it could be recreated through artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So you had enough resources or access to resources that you could survive. And then you were hacked so that you could feel appreciation for whatever level of resources you have. So like if you felt like you had no purpose biochemicals in your body would change so that it would make you feel like you have purpose. Is so that what techno- you're saying? So, yeah. And I think Yuval Harari calls it B plus C plus D equals HH. So that's biological knowledge plus computer power plus data equals human hacking. That equation could be applied so that your access to basic needs as determined by society whether it was right or wrong or fair or not or inequitable or equitable, but it was just what society deemed important for this country or as a global human or whatever, that could all be taken care of. And there would be inequality because there's probably no way to get around that because we're not all created equal. Some are taller, some are better at this, some are better at that, right? But we could be hacked so that it didn't matter. It didn't nag us so much that we could not buy an airplane that cost $100 million. We could only buy an airplane that cost $10 million. And it didn't bother us. Or it didn't bother (laughs) us that we didn't have central air or it didn't bother us that we didn't have a fancy house or it didn't bother us that we could never take a vacation because we could be biohacked so our neurochemistry felt purpose. Yeah. Getting back to the curiosity bite. Do we need to feel economic relevance to feel valuable? The answer is no. no. Yay. Yay. We've answered that. <laughs> we never finish these with a tiny little bow. Yeah. And that is interesting. I'm glad you brought that up as we wrap this session up. Yeah. 
We have had some interesting feedback on the podcast so far. It's been great. Thank you very much for writing in your responses to the curiosity. Really cool. Really cool. But a couple of people have said that at the end, it felt like something was missing. And this is the thing about curiosity. Curiosity lands us in this murky pond of uncertainty. And if we wrap up every episode and give a tiny, tidy takeaway or a conclusion like this one where we said no, where it's clear from this conversation that we feel, we could be wrong, that that answer is no, then it's not really an applied curiosity lab endeavor. So it may feel flat in that sometimes we deal with issues about the color of our skin or we deal with how we trust people, and it's not conclusive, that's okay. So if we end today's curiosity bite on do we need to feel economic relevance to feel valuable, and you come up with a different answer, that's kind of okay too. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, in order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to ApplyCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.